welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. My name is Camilla Burkhardt. I'm a research officer at the Development Policy Centre. Uh, and it's my pleasure today to be chatting with Robert Glasser, who is the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Disaster Risk Reduction. If I have got that correct. You've got that correct. Excellent. In, in the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, also known as UNISDR. Right, that's one of the uh, occupational hazards of being in the UN. Too many acronyms. <laughs> Yes, um, yeah, they do, you do sometimes trip over them a bit. Um, I thought to begin, perhaps, could you just paint a sort of quick and dirty picture of global trends and disaster impacts? Um, are we seeing more climate-related impacts? Are we seeing any overall improvements in resilience as a result of disaster risk reduction um, initiatives, such as the one that your office spearheads? Yep, sure, I'd be happy to. So we're seeing... Basically, if we look over the last decade or so, we're seeing a drop-off in the number of deaths, mortality from disasters overall, although in less developed countries, there is still, we're not seeing the same drop-off in loss of life. At the same time, we're seeing a continuing increase in economic losses from disasters. Mm. So clearly, um, investments that are not risk-informed, you know, hospitals being built in flood zones, where they're more vulnerable to disaster, to uh, to storms and the like. So we're seeing an increase in the economic cost. Mm-hmm. That's actually going up quite rapidly, sort of 300 billion a year, conservative estimate now. And uh, But, you know, it's a wild underestimate. Could be twice that number. We just don't have the data mm-hmm. actually on the costs. So that's those are the really broad trends. We're seeing huge progress in some countries like Bangladesh is an example, Mexico, where... Uh, various efforts to incorporate risk reduction in their core economic decision-making has resulted in major improvements and big drop-offs in loss of life and disasters. Mm. So it's kind of quite a mixed bag, really. Yeah, there it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think there's generally growing awareness of disaster risk uh, in countries. You still, the, the main challenge is to get move from managing disasters to managing disaster risk. Mm. And that really means uh, incorporating risk in the core economic planning that countries are are uh, undertaking in the budget process, mm. for example. Just as an example, in uh, globally, there's the OECD predicts or estimates there'll be something like $50 trillion in new investment in infrastructure over the coming decades. If that those investments aren't informed by the disaster and climate risk, then we will see huge continuing increases in economic losses from disasters. Mm. You, know, you can build the hospital in a flood zone or you can build it somewhere where it's less mm. exposed to hazards. Right, yeah. Um, so we're particularly interested in the Pacific region at Depth Policy. And I understand last week you were at a meeting in Fiji, uh, the Pacific Platform for Disaster Risk Management. Um, can you tell us about some of the key themes and that came out of that meeting? Any um, outcomes or recommendations? Yeah, sh- sure. So um, the some key themes. Well, the Pacific is one of those places where climate risk and climate adaptation and disaster risk are uh, are where there's huge overlap between those issues. If you look at um, you know there are a number of areas where disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation don't overlap. So for, on the disaster risk side, there are volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, right. yeah. which aren't about climate change. On the climate change adaptation side, there are things like um, you know, 
heat stress in buildings and how to adapt to that, which isn't about disasters. But if you look back over the last couple of decades, 90% of the major disasters have been hydrometeorological disasters, the ones that are basically those disasters that are increasing in frequency and severity, those hazards that are increasing in frequency and severity as a result of climate change. In the Pacific, disaster risk is fundamentally, for the most part, about uh, these increased storms, sea level rise, where for some countries it's really a matter of their survival as, as entities. Mm. So the main theme emerging from this meeting is the linkage between disaster risk and climate change adaptation. And the main outcome of the meeting was the launch of a framework, a Pacific regional framework for uh, resilient development, which fundamentally integrates disaster risk, the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction, and climate change, the Paris climate uh, climate change agreements in an integrated framework. Right. So, yeah, so that sounds like it must incorporate quite this sort of cross-sectoral approach. Yeah, because, you know, I guess in, in a lot of countries, including in Australia, if you look at the climate change adaptation strategy, it's, it's actually led by the environment ministry, right. yeah. the equivalent, and in many countries it's the same. And if you look at disaster risk, it's usually led by the disaster management agency. Mm. And generally those are agencies that are relatively weak bureaucratically in the government, um, when what needs to happen is those, those both of those have to come together and then brought into budget planning, mm. led by finance ministries or treasury in Australia exactly. predominantly. So yeah, it's a, it, a lot of silos and uh, bridging the silos is the name of the game. Yes, it's before. the first step, is getting people to understand, to see those silos and understand how to, to start to work across them. Yeah, or actually I would say, it's, maybe I wouldn't say it's the first step, it's an important step. Mm. For me, the first step, if I look at how you do this, is you have to speak the language a finance ministry or a treasury understands, which mm. means the money, what does it mean? And that, so... We we sort of look at it in two steps. One is to quantify the impacts disasters have had in the country, whether it's Australia or, or a developing country, mm -hmm. uh, so you know what they've cost, and there are huge gaps in that data, but to at least be able to quantify it. And then to do a risk projection for the future to say, okay, well, with climate change, we can't really rely on the past as a reliable indicator mm -hmm. of the future risk. So what's the projection of the risk? How will it change? And then with those two pieces, you basically know what the costs are. You can, and then you can sit down with a treasury or the finance ministry and say, okay, here's the cost. Were you aware of this? And if you incorporate that in planning, governments should be investing differently than they would mm. if they weren't aware of the risk. So right. that's the yeah. objective is to, as the first step. And bringing the money together in the budget, I think, helps break down the silos. Mm, yeah, no, that makes that makes that's a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, money talks. <laughs> money talks, exactly. Yeah. Um, so to date, UNISDR has been fairly low profile agency. I think it's one of the rel relatively small agency in terms of staff numbers. Um, is that about to change now the Paris Agreement is sort of really mm. in effect? Um, you know, I'm, I would be very happy for UNISDR to be a very low profile or even invisible organization if disaster risk is prominent as the, as a, you know, visible and is being addressed effectively and integrated with climate change sure, adaptation. Yeah. Um, 
uh, UNSDR is a, it is a small organization. It's about 120 people around the world, most many in regional offices, including one and a half people, <laughs> two people in the Pacific yeah. region, which is really key. So I think I don't think it will ever be, you know, like UNDP or the World Food Program, which are very large mm-hmm. organizations and have a higher profile. And I think our job, at least my job as the UN Secretary General Special Representative for Disaster Risk Reduction, is to is to do what I can to raise the profile of risk, the costs, to congratulate countries when they're moving in the right directions, to uh, to be critical, a critical friend mm-hmm. uh, in discussions, usually informally or you know uh, not publicly necessarily, sure. and to try and move these uh, these discussions forward. In each country, there's kind of a constituency for work on reducing disaster risk or climate change risk. Right. And um, it might be a bit helpful if the UN and if we, our organization can raise the profile, it gives them a little more space maybe to push that agenda within the government and hopefully to make some progress and further progress in right. reducing disaster risk. Yeah. So it's really sort of a... Um... Well, this is my next question. So what, what do you actually would define as the core business of your office? Is it more about that, I guess it sounds like sort of facilitating and um, providing sort of specialized assistance to governments, but you're also working on a sort of more global level, um, trying to develop standards or that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, yes. So let's see, our core work. So we've actually just been redefining our strategic framework. So I've okay. answered this question. <laughs> A week ago, or no, a few months, maybe two months ago, it would have been, uh, I would have been able to answer it, but maybe with less certainty about the, how it would look. But so I guess they're really kind of, I'd say there's sort of three, uh, three main areas of work mm. that we focus on. One is we have this international agreement, the Sendai framework, and UNISDR is sort of the, I guess, Maybe it's not overstating it or understating it to describe it as the secretariat for that global agreement. And that means we are facilitating the process to develop the indicators for each of the goals that were agreed by countries. And then that will be rolled out in monitoring implementation and we will manage that process to, to monitor implementation mm-hmm. and gather the data and analyze you know, what progress is being made, where are the gaps, what are the themes that are emerging, all of that bit around monitoring implementation. It's also linked to the climate change agreement and the SDGs mm-hmm. because the same indicators we're developing for Sendai are going to be used at this point. We're fairly confident of that by as the appropriate indicators for the SDG process. So there's a monitoring link to SDGs. So that's one area. Mm-hmm. The second is the support to countries in their in, in helping them be able to implement the Sendai Agreement, what they've signed up to. And there are a couple of key steps in that process. There's technical support, there's sharing best practice and examples. And it's basically helping them set up the pieces they need to develop their strategies and to begin implementing them. Like, do they can they measure what disasters have cost, right. disaster loss database? Have they evaluated the risks in the future? Are they able to then take that and have a discussion with finance ministries to embed risk in planning. Mm. And then with those processes, then you have, you can implement the strategy, which is actually the, 
the earliest deliverable deadline in the Sendai framework. By 2020, countries should have national and local level DRR strategies. Right. So if those things are in place, it's easier to have a, a real strategy mm. as opposed to mm. a piece of paper that sits on a shelf. So that's the second bit, helping, providing technical assistance to help with our partners, the banks, the World Bank, GFDRR, Global Fund for Disaster Risk Reduction, a little more acronym. Of course. <laughs> UNDP and others yes. who were working with end donors like the EU and uh, Australia is also um, a key player in this, the Australian aid program, to help them implement those things. And then the third area of work is really the advocacy, the work with stakeholders, civil society, the private sector, something like... I mentioned that $50 trillion of investment in new infrastructure. Well, like over 70% of that will be implemented by the private sector, not by government. So if the private sector isn't brought in fundamentally to address disaster risk, we're not going to get there. So, mm. uh, so the key roles for the civil society and the private sector, and actually, even though they're not really a stakeholder because they're part of us, the UN system itself integrating risk reduction and climate risk across UN agencies. Right, okay. It's part of that work as well. Sort of a mainstreaming, mainstreaming of DR. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, on the topic of technical assistance, I, I guess is where it would fall, do you think that, so there's specialised agencies in developed countries like Geosciences Australia, for example, do they have something to offer developing countries? Do they sort of fit into this kind of overall framework or are there sort of two different the problems and the capabilities to divergent they are totally relevant in fact just before coming here i had a meeting at Ge come from a meeting at geoscience <laughs> australia with the head of geoscience australia and csiro climate change focal point i'm not sure what his title is but really really smart guy and uh, the bureau of meteorology as well okay. um, to talk about science and technology in support of disaster risk reduction so i would say we spent three quarters of our conversation on Australia, what Australia is doing and how you translate all the knowledge, enormous knowledge Australia has about climate risk and disaster risk and, you know, geographic information systems where they've plotted flood risk mm. in cities and, and how that is translated into implementation in budgets and planning. Mm. That's a big gap still in Australia and in most countries, actually. Mm. So that was a big chunk, but the probably at least a third of the discussion was about how Australia can support countries around the world, in, particularly in Australia's immediate region in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. and places like that to incorporate Australian science for early warning systems, right. um, for technologies on how to build back better, on flood management, on you know, just the broad range of issues on earthquake modeling and volcanoes right, okay. and tsunami warning, you know, there's a huge agenda of work for the science and technology community and for Australia as a leader in certainly in geosciences and uh, climate modeling mm. and the like. So, yeah. so certainly, certainly space there just to finding how to, to make, really make those linkages across, I guess, would, would be the challenge. That's, that's a challenge also, if we focus on the Pacific, mm. um, you know, our colleagues at Geoscience Australia were saying, you know, we've done, or maybe it was the Bureau of Meteorology, say, mentioned that they had this big project working with the Pacific to, on early warning systems, but what they discovered was, as soon as they left, the capacity just, either their contacts moved out of the region or 
and I know this is a, what took me in the aid program, I remember from my days at Ozaid, mm. you know, the capacity, the inst- institutional capacity, the weakness of the institution. Sometimes there's one person you're working with is a huge challenge to yeah. embed the science and technology or to, we have all these tools, but, you know, there's the absorptive capacity. Yes. <laughs> a huge challenge. In yes. Um, that's certainly, I think, the case in a lot of, and across a lot of the aid program. Yeah. Um, what's your view of sort of disaster risk insurance schemes? Um, mm. There's regional schemes, um, more specific schemes. I think, as I understand, DFID has been quite interested in these and has been pushing for these. They don't really seem to be taking off, and there's quite a lot of critique of them as well. Right, yeah. So, um, so okay, so maybe the starting point is, you know, ideally countries should identify the risk. They should not create more risk. They should try and uh, decrease the exposure and vulnerability for in, that, that exists already, and but there will always be risks that cannot be reduced that exist, and insurance is an, plays an important role in transferring that risk to others, basically, or sharing it more mm. widely as a way of uh, making countries less less vulnerable, I guess. So there's a key role. It doesn't solve all the problems. It, uh, you know, but it clearly has an important niche, and and there are certainly areas where there is inadequate coverage, and where more coverage would arguably, objectively, be good as a public policy approach in the country. So I think that's the big picture. Then another part of the big picture is that this is a very hot area of work right now. There's an initiative that we're involved with uh, that includes the CEOs of the largest insurance industries, mutuals and reinsurers in the world that is looking at how to share disaster risk data, which they is generally have been proprietary, mm. but now they're thinking we need to do this more, uh, you know, because of climate change and other factors that um, is looking at how to um, support reaching the bottom, the bottom billion, mm-hmm. or they have insured greater coverage through, you know, um, Microinsurance products and uh, and uh, finding opportunities to do that. It's looking at working with the UN, the World Bank, and others on the insurance regulatory environment because some of the regulations are not have not been uh, do not reflect the facts and the knowledge that we have about risk. Right. And so it's preventing this the availability of insurance products that. Objectively, again, I mean, it's always a judgment call, but I think pretty convincingly that with some changes in the regulation, they would be sensible from a public policy perspective. That would also create business for the insurance industry, mm-hmm. but simultaneously, you know, transfer risk. And then also these sovereign risk funds, mm-hmm. and insurance pooling in places like the Pacific or the Caribbean, where there is controversy. I mean, um, there are huge challenges in, particularly in the Pacific, which is spread over a huge area, has small populations, um, uh, and the risks, the hazards are huge um, and increasing dramatically. Um, so I, you know, rather than, I know those are fundamental challenges, and, and that's why there is a role both for governments and also for donors, the World Bank, the Australian Aid Program, mm. to try and see if it's possible to develop a model that is 
you know, if it's if the if the risks aren't if the costs aren't right, then the scheme goes out of business. Mm. So it has to be sustaining somehow. Of course, with a subsidy, the the, the aid subsidy or the concessional element, um, and we've seen many examples in projects of insurance schemes that initially are not sustainable. But that's the challenge. <laughs> so that's really the challenge to uh, to make sure that. Uh, you know, the elements are right. And also being very clear about what's appropriate from a public policy mm. perspective and what is basically subsidizing an industry unfairly. Yeah, it's quite a challenging public policy um, very challenging, yeah. field to navigate. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, lastly, I wanted to ask you, in the course of your career, you've had quite a varied career. You've worked for AusAid. You mentioned, um, I understand you worked for Care Australia and then Care International, so you've seen sort of quite a few different sides of the aid and development world. And now, of course, you're entering the U- venture at the UN at quite a, a high level. Um, now, of course, you have to be dip- diplomatic in answering this question. But I'm wondering if you could comment on the strengths or the weaknesses of the UN system. Um, wow. <laughs> relative to your past experience. Well, so, okay, I can give you my cliche. This is, was my view of the UN from the outside, from the Australian government and from CARE. It was bureaucracy, slow, skimming the money off the top. You know, you gave it to care directly, we could implement much faster. And, you know, these were the cliche images that I had of the UN. So I guess I was very pleasantly surprised to see how lean my, the new organization I came into was, UNISDR. Mm. It was really lean. In fact, it was too lean. Um, you know, for example, we organized, they, before I arrived, organized the Sendai, really organized and arranged the Sendai uh, meeting in Sendai, this world conference. And it was really done on a shoestring budget. And it was basically because every single staff member was working, you know, 18 hour days for three months. So you could argue that's admirable. On the other hand, it's very bad management yeah. because people are burned out mm. and they're exhausted afterwards. So. Um, so I think what I saw didn't really jive with my expectations. I have, of course, seen inefficiency and even, you know, things like the HR systems, the human resource systems in the UN, particularly in the UN Secretariat, are just so complicated. And I'm, we're actually implementing a change process uh, in our organization. And I'm really hoping that we work hard <laughs> To, to try and implement within the rigidity of the system. And I don't, I've actually don't blame the UN for that rigidity. It's, it's really, I think at least, at least 70% of that is the a reflection of the intervention of the states, member states in the system. And I think it, over time, it has just created this complexity that makes is really difficult to untangle. So I think, so that's one comment. The other comment is I feel really strongly that this the, the peace the UN provides is basically the multilateral space. There are a lot of flaws in the UN system and they reflect the flaws in the international system. But there is this little precious thing called multilateral space where things can happen that would not be able to happen outside of it. And I feel as a senior person in the UN, my part of my job is to try and, and, and there are pressures to close that space in every direction, um, mm. as, you, as we see in the world, which I'd be happy to talk about. But 
I feel that my job, one of my jobs, is to try and do what I can to push it open some more. And DRR is one of those areas where you can get people around the table, you can demonstrate progress, you can demonstrate that multilateral action can deliver. Mm. And so I always, in my work, I try to, in my advocacy, try and keep that. It's not just about DRR and climate change, it's also about the importance of multilateral space in the world we're entering into, which is more complex, you know, multipolar, huge challenges that can only, I think, will only be addressed effectively with in, in with that multilateral space. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it is very easy to to find the faults of the UN system, and it's we don't often have a chance to talk to someone who's actually in it and at that level um, to have that perspective so it's really valuable I can thank you for saying that Um, I can say that I've I've, when I was with CARE I sat on the inter IASC which is this UN agencies the heads of agencies that were involved in humanitarian response and um, I was representing sort of the NGO community at the time on Mm -hmm. that committee when I was with CARE and Antonio Guterres the the head of UNHCR was also at that table and he was uh you know i think of all the people around the room he had the most completely developed worldview and almost every one of his comments fit consistently within his worldview um so he is really a wonderful choice i mean it would have been nice if it there had been a woman secretary general and there was actually the the candidate who I think was sort of next second on the list would have been fantastic but Antonio Guterres intellectually and as a communicator and as a humanitarian someone who's committed Mm. really obviously committed to doing the right thing he is a fantastic choice well that's that's good to hear Yeah. yeah um well, on that positive note, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you again very much for taking the time to come have a chat. It's um, it's been a pleasure, and I, I was not very familiar with UNISDR when I sat down to do this interview, so now I've learned a lot. A little more. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be here. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the great work that uh, your organization's doing, and I colleagues that are working here as well who are really wonderful so you're lucky to have them, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you very much sure thanks you have been listening to a podcast from the development policy center for more information on our work visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au to join the conversation on australian aid papua new guinea and the pacific and global development policy visit our blog at devpolicy.org At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.